Welcome to Beyond the Screen, an Ionis podcast, where we share insights and tips to help you scale your business's online presence, hosting genuine conversations with the best in the web and IT industry, and exploring how the Ionis brand can help professionals and customers with their hosting and cloud issues. We're your hosts, Joe Nash and Liz Moy. Hi, and welcome to the Beyond the Screen podcast. I'm your host, Joe Nash, and today I'm joined by Adrias Maurer, Head of Public Relations at Ionis, for a chat about the history and development of internet hosting. Andreas, thank you for joining me today. Hi, Joe. Great being here. Yeah, I'm very excited to chat. This is a topic near and dear to my heart, the history of uh, kind of web hosting and how that has evolved. I feel like one of the tensions for me in my career, at least, is like I grew up with a very particular version of, you know, getting a website online and it's very different now. And so I'm always very interested in this topic and how things have changed. Obviously, you've been working in this field for, I believe it was over 25 years. Is that correct? Yes, probably. I'm in the field of PR, and I think I was lucky to be at university at the right time, because the first time I heard of the internet was, I think, in 1993. And actually, I also encountered already the World Wide Web, although I didn't know what it was yet at the time. Yeah, of course. So I remember, I think it was also in 93, I was an excursion with the university class in Uppsala in Sweden. And there we got the first introduction of this World Wide Web. I don't remember if they actually named it that way. Very fancy, and it was ah, you need a very sophisticated high-end machine to use this, and to never try to write any garbage and and anything that looks encrypted because then the NSA will be on your back right away. So it was very fancy. So I'm from Germany, and I decided to go to the US to study abroad for a year, and that's actually when I played around with the internet at my university and found out about my school there. And actually, being in in the US in '94, '95 was great because, of course, the states were like three years ahead of Europe. So there I could see a lot and also could see how technology works. So I think at that time, really, nobody talked about web posting providers, commercial providers. But actually, if you wanted to be on the web, you needed to be either in the government, the military, or at a university, at a research institution. So that was quite a good situation. But then I think pretty quickly, the first commercial hosting company showed up. So I actually created my first homepage, my personal homepage, I think in 1994. And actually, also, I think 94, 95, the first homepage for my university where I worked in the PR department as an intern or working student, but I had to hard code HTML, so learn everything from Sketch. I still remember probably FTPing it up onto something. Yes, definitely. So how I learned for the first time about the internet was actually my dorm in Berlin, because I had an American exchange student living in my hallway, and she once told me, oh, I'm writing mails or letters with my family at home via the computer. And that was, it was, yeah, how does this work? So I went to our IT department and asked for that. And the answer was that they pushed a big blue book in front of me, which said introduction into Unix. Of course, I had no idea. I wasn't a computer science student or so, but that was really my, my first impression. Yeah. And then, so my first job was actually not internet related, but my second one was, which was with uh, UUNet, a company that doesn't exist anymore, or nowadays the remainders are part of, of Verizon. But UUNet at that time, I think I joined them in 1997. UUNet was one of the big hosting companies besides being a telco. And their hosting meant that they had huge mainframes systems. I think actually the hosting was still in the US while while I was working in, in Germany. But it was really like a magic sauce to work with that. And in Germany, actually, one of the first I learned about this company while I worked at UUNet was Schlund & Partner which was founded in, in 1995 in Karlsruhe. And that's actually the source of what today is IONOS. And Schlund & Partner was founded by a guy, Andreas Gauger, who had a Microsoft software company, I think it was even before Windows. So he wrote 
MS-DOS software. And one of his employees once told him, oh, I read in this computer magazine about this thing uh, called the internet, and I think this might be the next big thing. And then Andreas told him, okay, you can devote half of your time working for that. And out of that came Schlund and Partner. And then but the company grew big because uh, three students actually came by and asked if they could hook up their Linux server uh, with this company because they had this super fast 64 kilobit internet connection. And that's actually how this company got started. Again, if you talk about the technology, at that point, the first server, I think, first web hosting server from Schlund and Partner was a Windows NT PC that was on the desk of the CEO. So that's where the pages were hosted. And then things grew. So at that time, really, there was still, I would say, probably a handful, two handful of, of hosting companies. But then the market started to grow. Of course, I imagine it grew very quickly as well once it got going. Yeah. Then in the mid-1990s, there was, was kind of a gold rush, which, which, of course, later also turned into the dot-com bubble, which I also experienced myself. But still, many companies came up, the connections got better. So suddenly you had a vast amount of companies in the late 90s, 2000s. I think you saw a little bit more specialization and a lot of very small hosting companies that developed. And today, I would say we have some kind of, of segmentation. So we have players like Ionos who really have the full-fledged package, but you also have very specialized companies either offering website builders or a specialized e-commerce solution. And on the very high end, where Ionos also plays a part, is, of course, the actual cloud. And I think we'll talk about this a little bit later. But what was quite an interesting journey, and I'm very happy that I was able to be a part of it. Absolutely, yeah. And you covered on a bunch of things that I think I want to try and go back to. So I guess one of the, you gave that journey of like, you know, the first, talking about your first experience of web hosting and then, you know, some of these players that came about. Like, how did, I guess, the nature of those web hosts like change over that, you know, early 90s to early 2000s period? Because if we just think about getting a website online now, a lot of those technologies just like straight up weren't around. Like, you know, obviously virtualization, which you rely on now, wasn't really how things worked. And we joked about FTP earlier, but my experience of early web hosts, and I'm sure lots of people have kind of similar ideas is like, you know, you've got a, a share of a Linux server that you're just FTPing some files up onto and it, maybe you have PHP, maybe you have some Perl, Fire, CGI. Primarily, it's like static file hosting, right? Rather than apps. Exactly. That's how, how it began. As I said, starting with plain HTML, needed to be able to code. Then when I, when I joined Unit, which is quite funny because Unit was a hosting company itself, but I worked in the marketing and was in, in charge of the company website. And my boss sent me actually in my first or second week, he sent me to a seminar to learn NetObjects Fusion. You know, if you remember the software, which is a, was a quite popular website creator software, but definitely nothing you would ever think of employing in an enterprise. Kind of like equivalent to Microsoft front page, Dreamweaver area, right? Okay. Yeah, similar. Front page, Dreamweaver, exactly. Tools like that. So that came up, but still, it's not really suitable for an enterprise page. But that was, of course, a way for many people to develop homepages without being able to code. Because like, if you remember front page, uh, there's, I mean, front page could still be complicated, but there was also a kind of drag and drop that you earned from Microsoft Office. Then there came stuff like single sign server-side includes, SSL, server-side includes, where you could actually have some text blocks that, or, or code blocks that you could, for instance, for a footer or a header of a page that you could automatically include. So I, I saw that in the mid-90s. And then, of course... PHP, which I think was developed already in 1993, but really became popular a little bit later with the LAMP stack in combination with MySQL databases, etc., that suddenly you were able to provide dynamic content, which also for me 
again, I'm not a coder, I'm not a programmer. So I always did this as a hobby, but this was a revelation for me when I dive deep into WordPress, for instance. Also, actually, one of my next jobs was with an enterprise content management software company. So I think I joined there in 1999, I think. So they sold software similar to what today we all do with WordPress or Type 3 or Drupal, content management software, but they sold it to companies and the pricing started at a 100,000, 200,000, I think it was still D-Mark, Deutschmark at that time for the package plus annual service fee. And it worked. And it was what uh, many, many big companies use this software. And then out of nowhere for me, uh, suddenly open source software like WordPress came up. And that again, of course, was, was a huge change for the whole industry. And I think WordPress was invented just, yeah, just actually this weekend celebrated its 20th birthday. Oh, no way. I did not know that. Yeah. It's amazing. Quite a success story. And it really democratized web publishing so much because the software was for free. Still not too easy, but even I was able to set up my WordPress blog in a couple of hours. WordPress was also my introduction to like dynamic content. Like I again started on, you know, like static writing static HTML and WordPress was when I first really encountered the idea that like, oh, I can make fancy apps using WordPress plugins and this kind of stuff. Um, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And today, of course, we've moved one step further, even with static page generators that I heard of only for the first time two or three years ago when we introduced our own products. For instance, where you can publish your whole website via GitHub. Quite amazing thing for me as a layman, but technology is increasing so much. And I think the biggest change, of course, that the CMS systems brought along was this differentiations between the admins who run the system, maybe who actually set up the design, the themes, and the actual editors do not need to program anything anymore. So, for instance, our user Metaionos runs on WordPress. So we had quite a long session with an agency that created a theme for us, did all the programming, the coding, and with a lot of loops. But once the system was set up, and if I want to add a press release there, I need to upload the text or write the text, put in some pictures, maybe add in some links. But I do need any special knowledge anymore. And I think that's really amazing. Kind of the next step in, I guess, the democratization that you were talking about with Fusion, with more people being able to use it without coding knowledge. and So quite interesting. And on the other hand, of course, if you talk about things like these static page generators, it's just another dimension, as I said, there, and it's probably also for a different type of pages in our company. For instance, we have dynamic content like the newsroom, we have more static stuff like our shop page where we actually sell our products. And of course, we employ a lot of different technologies for that. I guess that one question I guess that raises me is, so, you know, in these early days, web hosting was very much a, you know, you had to be technical to to be using the web host at the time to actually get a website online. You needed very technical knowledge, and now you know there are technologies that you can employ as a non technical person to have access to a website. And I imagine that's changing the consumer relationship for web host and therefore your business as well, right? Because your I imagine web hosting is now having to start serving people who aren't necessarily building the website; they're just putting a, a website they bought or a system that like WordPress that's you know configured for them up online. So how did the business of web hosting change throughout that transition? I think what you just described means mainly that it has diversified because we still have these techies. We still have people who know who to code. And that's one of our key target groups at IONOS where we try to have really highly sophisticated, high-end solutions. But on the other hand, we have this huge target group and, and that's actually one of our core target groups, SMBs, small and medium businesses. For instance, during the pandemic, we've seen it was just so important for small businesses to get their business uh, digital. 
somewhere because many people couldn't go to a physical shop anymore. And of course, these people neither have the knowledge nor usually they have the right experts in their company. So you need solutions that are very easy to use, stuff like uh, website builders like our my website that you can really use in a similar way that you would create a document in Microsoft Word or Google Docs uh, where you just push in your content and so on. And then, of course, the individual needs are very different apart from the knowledge. So if you think about a small, I don't know, lawyer or even a baker or so, he probably wants something like his business card on, on the web where he just wants to display his shop Maybe the employees, the products or restaurant will display a menu. But if you are in a business uh, where you use more backend technology, for instance, bigger business, you might have nowadays people working in different locations. So you need a chat tool where you can communicate. You want a video conferences like we're doing here. You need additional services beyond the mere web hosting, collaboration tools. So that's why what we call this main section of our business, web hosting and productivity. And this productivity part that I think also evolved mainly maybe in the last 10 or 15 years only with a lot of great tools. Of course, we have the giants again with Microsoft and Google. Google started from the web, but Microsoft now with Office 365 tries to put its Office products in the cloud. But on the other hand, we have some great open source solutions. We have already for quite a while open off LibreOffice. Own cloud, next cloud, whatever it's called now. Next cloud, exactly, where you can basically set up your own cloud server, either on your PC at home, or I have a small RAID system here where I could run my own next cloud, or you could go to a hosting company like us, where you have, of course, big internet connectivity. And I think something related to that that has also become more and more important is the topic of security and reliability, because for many companies, the internet now is the foundation of their business. And of course, do not want to lose your data, you do not want to have a privacy breach, apart from legal consequences, you lose all your customers. And that's something that usually a hosting company can do much better. You can do at home with the a small server under your desk. Yes, yeah, I definitely sympathize with that. There's like, I've recently gotten into a bunch of like home hosting stuff again, but even then I'm like, oh, I don't want to deal with like anything that I have to open my PC up to the internet. I tried once or twice to set up an email server and never again. So on that point as well, I imagine, especially thinking of the little I know about the German market, that for small businesses as well, like where they're keeping their data is also important, right? Like, you know, if they go and use like the Google or the Microsoft versus for their office solution, by necessity, all their data is going to the US. Whereas if they're hosting in a data center in Germany using Nextcloud, their data stays in the country they expect it to. Is that also a factor in in that use case? Yes, definitely. I mean, that's a very strong argument for us. I mean, this podcast is aiming, of course, as, as at US listeners. So we have our data center in the US. We have our own company in the US, which is completely independent from our European business. So we have a huge data center in Kansas, in Lenexa, where we host the data from our American customers. But for all our European customers, the data are stored in Germany, in Spain, in France, the UK as well. And that's a very strong argument because, of course, we all know about the GDPR which, of course, on the one hand, for companies, sometimes creates a lot of hassle. But on the other hand, it has created a security standard that even has been a blueprint for new laws in the US, like in California. So I think that's the gold standard at the moment. And of course, it means for us as a company that we need to invest strongly to create the security. So for instance, I think you talked to Uwe Allenwein a couple of days ago, who built our big new data center in Wooster in, in the UK. I've been there last year, and it's just amazing. Uh, because I also know our older data centers here in, in Germany or in France. So it's just 
incredible how technology has evolved, but also how security standards have evolved. I have this nice uh, picture in my background, which is actually of... I was wondering if it was one of the German data centers. Yeah, that's awesome. It's really on us, a data center picture. But if I remember, I joined the company or group in 2003, so 20 years ago. And if you had a look at our data center there, it wouldn't have been that nice. But it really was like huge racks of all kinds of computer servers, but also plain PCs. So it was really a mix. And today we really have very sorted system. Of course, energy saving is something becomes so much more important. Sustainability and, as I said, reliability and security. So that's why we use completely different technology than, than we did 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah, which I guess we've been talking about the history of web hosting and we've mentioned some wild times, servers on CEOs' desks and that kind of thing. As we move towards the present era and nowadays, like, you know, most people get their websites or web applications online via some kind of cloud provider, right? Like via, I think it's fair to describe them as a very different kind of interface, kind of experience to the web hosting industry. And many people see them as very separate products in a way. But how has that transition to the cloud era, like, I guess, influence the technology and the products that you're able to offer and the, I guess the unification of those products? That's a very interesting question. I'm still investigating every now and then where the term cloud actually comes from because I never, never figured out the original source. Right. <laughs> yeah, I always have no idea. Yeah. Because what does cloud mean? I mean, we are basically saying we've always been in the cloud business because we've been connected to huge, big internet wires with all our services. We've been offering email, web hosting. These are cloud services. But I think if you talk about cloud today, probably what you think of is, is really that you have a big mesh of computers that are all connected to each other that you cannot even distinguish anymore between the physical hardware. And I think that's really one of the big benefits that the cloud enables the customer to easily grow their, their businesses because they, they actually we started this a little bit earlier with what we call cloud servers or virtual cloud servers, which means that customers share space on one piece of machine and they need more CPU units. If they need more RAM, more storage, they could just simply extend this, but still within the realm of one physical machine. And with the cloud now, and actually we've just started migrating these cloud servers, which were physical machines, into our cloud platform, which we also operate. Now this, these physical edges vanish somehow. And then we can say, well, even if you need to go from 6 to 60 CPU cores, okay, if this one machine doesn't have enough, we just extend it to the next machine. And that provides much more flexibility from a customer perspective. So you're no longer locked in a certain piece of hardware. And it also, of course, completely mixes the hassle of migration. So in the past, if you want to, for instance, if you wanted to migrate from a web hosting package to your own server, you needed to check how easy it was to migrate your data to this new system. So with us, if you migrated to a managed dedicated server, that was fairly easy because we employ the same technology for these managed servers like we did do for our so-called shared hosting platform. But if you want to go to a root server where you, you have all the rights to operate the server yourself, but you also have the duty. So we if you have a root server, we don't have your password anymore, so we can't do anything as a provider. So you somehow need to see how you get your data on this new machine. But if you do this on one platform like the cloud, of course, you just don't have this problem anymore. Because if you grow, you just add some virtual machines or some CPUs or gigs of storage to it. And that's very simple. And one benefit that we have at IONOS is that we run our own cloud platform. So again, a nice side story. 
because we're actually this year celebrating our 25th anniversary at Ionos. So that 25 years ago was the year when one and one Internet bought Schlund and Partner, this company I talked about. And in 2017, we bought a small German company called Profitbricks. And Profitbricks actually is a cloud infrastructure company based in Berlin. And it was founded by our former one and one CTO, Achim Weiss, who now happens to be our CEO at Ionos. Achim was actually one of the students I mentioned who came to this company. Really? <laughs> Achim himself programmed the first version of this cloud platform. Of course, today we have hundreds of programmers working on that. But of course, we are very flexible and very independent there. And for us as a hosting company now, what this means is we have a project that we call the Internet Factory, which in a wider sense means that we try to, I mean, Ionos is not just one company, but we have something around 10 brands. And what we're trying now is that we do not invent the wheel three times a day, but we try to use one hosting stack, one email stack. And another side aspect of this is now started trying to migrating as many as possible uh, uh individual systems onto our own cloud platform. So as I said, our shared hosting platform used to be very diverse with a lot of different computers. So we're shifting it now to our own cloud. But other companies, we do not have to go to AWS or Google or Microsoft. Hyperscalers, because we run our own infrastructure, we run our infrastructure for European customers in Europe, for American customers in the US. So that's pretty straightforward. And we're very flexible. And I think one other important aspect that we see in the cloud is also that you from a customer perspective, should definitely try to avoid what we call vendor lock-in. And that's something that you face with some of the, the big hyperscalers, that they make it very difficult for you to migrate your data to a different service. And that was always in our DNA that we said, okay, we invite you to come to our service, but also if you're not happy with it, you're free to go somewhere else. And for instance, I don't know who known that is in, in the US, but in Europe, we have a big initiative called GaiaX, which is a European cloud initiative. And the idea of GaiaX is really to ensure this interoperability between different cloud providers and this completely opposition against vendor lock-in is, is one of the key segments. And another term that is a key part of GaiaX is data sovereignty. So we want that really our customers control what happens to the data, where their data are stored. And the interesting bit about GaiaX, as I said, it's a European initiative. So it was started by the German and the French Ministry of Business. But in the last years, actually, all the American hyperscalers joined the initiative because they've seen advantage. And of course, especially outside of the U.S., they have a problem because of American surveillance laws. I mean, another anniversary that we have these days is the 10th anniversary of the Snowden revelations, which I think also meant a big change for the whole industry. So it was very funny because I was just in our U.S. office 10 years ago when the first revelations came out. And it was quite interesting. So in Europe, Nobody could believe what came out there. And on the other hand, in the US, at least at that time, nobody was really interested in this. But I think this also has changed in the last years. Do you think that lack of interest was because it was expected or just the ramifications weren't? I don't think anybody really expected that. But I think generally, at least 10 years ago, Europe had just a completely different understanding of privacy, data protection than the US. So I think in the U.S. It's, it's much more common that you're more open with your data, whereas the Europeans always have been rather restrictive. So I think that was the biggest reason. But still, I think everybody was just shocked about the amount of data that was collected by a government agency. And, and even in the U.S., I think that was for the U.S., for American citizens, the biggest problem that they not only eavesdrop on foreigners, but also on American citizens. And I think that really changed the playing field. 
And also for us, it meant that we had to rethink how we deal with data. For instance, we always thought, well, why should we encrypt the traffic between our different data centers? But after Snowden, I think it took us a couple of months and we encrypted all the connections simply for security reasons. So it was just amazing what happened there. But on the other hand, I mean, the cloud won't go away. And I think nowadays, a huge amount of the world business rely on cloud services, even in parts where you just don't think of it. So we need to find ways to make it as secure and, and still feasible as possible. Sure. And you mentioned the new data center in the UK. These things that you're looking forward to the future in terms of security and moving things onto the cloud, like how is that shaping up in that new data center? I imagine that data center is getting a lot of the newer advances. Is the testing bed for them, if not just because of how new it is? Yes, definitely. But actually, it's really just the starting point. I mean, this data center in Wooster is on the outskirts of the city. So there are just some factories around, but not much else. But if you're thinking about new data centers, and there's actually also a European initiative right now that, that tries to enforce certain sustainability regulations. So one thing that we will work on is also to use the waste heat from our data centers in the future. And we could do that in Wooster technically, but there's just nobody who would take the heat at the moment right around the corner because the city itself is just too far away. But for instance, in near Frankfurt, we're planning a new data center. We're already in very close talks with local energy suppliers on how we can get the waste heat there. And of course, the security and availability standards of these new data centers will be the minimum that we aim for in the future. Which we had a great discussion about and how the tier system and how it came about in that data center was very interesting or new to me. So I'm excited for the listeners to hear that episode too. Yes, definitely. I also love the story that, that Uwe told there. But I mean, this is a standard that used to be common for banks, uh, tier four or insurance companies. But we think with more and more people going into the cloud, it gets even more important for everybody. And But there are also other standards, European standards that we will follow that are even stronger than in parts than the, the tier standards from the Uptime Institute. So that will definitely be the path that we will pursue. And another interesting aspect is that currently 10 or 11 data centers ourselves, but we also have more than 30 data centers that where we use co-location sites. So where we rented space in an existing data center from a colo provider. And that is also something that we will continue to do. And basically, we we're just looking how much the demand is in, in a certain market. And if it goes beyond a certain point, then it might make sense economically for us to, to build our own data center. But one thing that is for sure with the cloud is that we definitely need many, many more so-called availability zones. With the cloud, one, one benefit is because you're independent from the physical hardware that you can also store your data at, at different sites, at different locations. But for instance, if you have really a physical catastrophe, you have an earthquake or whatever in one place, you can still save your data at a different location. That is actually something that we started already for our shared hosting services a couple of years ago. We called this dual hosting. So our entire shared hosting platform and our email services and our databases are all mirrored in real time at a separate location. So in both in the US and in Europe, in Germany, for instance, the two data centers are like 30 kilometers or 20 miles or so apart. In Kansas, it's the same. So our main data center is in the Nexa and, and the backup site is in, in Kansas City, which I think is also around 20, 20, 30 miles away. So there you have a certain guarantee that it's very unlikely that the same catastrophe would happen in, in similar places. And we've done this basically for all services so far, except for dedicated servers, because dedicated server means that one customer has one server. So he or she could still, of course, buy a second server. No, anybody won. But that's, of course, also something that is much easier with a cloud platform than, than with 
physical hardware. It's much easier to replicate a Docker container in another, you know, in the persistent platform than the whole custom server config, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But engineers actually told me that it was quite some work to really get this real-time replication, something that I wouldn't have thought. And the idea is also within, I think, one and a half or two minutes, we are able to switch from one data center side to the other completely if something happens. And that's, of course, especially neat when you have just regular maintenance. So you can just plan this in advance. No more uh, putting up holding pages of this website will be offline between these hours, the good old days. And again, if you look back in history, this was just 30 years ago. That's quite amazing. And today I looked up, I think I found a number that there's an estimate that we have some 200,000 or so web hosting companies across the world. But of course, you have very different standards. And I think that's something as a hosting customer, you just need to take into account. And of course, it depends on what kind of data you have. So if you just have your private hobby page as a photographer or for your local club, then you don't need too much security. And maybe you can go to a smaller or cheaper hoster. But if you really have relevant data for your business, then you definitely should take a close look at the security features. This might be asking a question that's too deep into that number, but do you think that number, I actually think I have that number here, I think it's 330,000 hosting companies. Do you think that represents a peak? Like where I'm coming from from this is like, because of the existence of the hyperscalers, I would imagine some degree of consolidation. And it may be in the past dot com boom or something like that. Maybe there would be more. Do you think we're at like peak hosting or? It's very difficult to tell. I would say it's definitely a peak for the big ones, but I haven't found a number. I don't know how many companies like from of our size exist. But for instance, even some of our biggest competitors in the States seized their own, shut down their own data centers a couple of years ago and to the Amazon cloud, for instance. And we always said that it's one of our key USPs that we run our own technology. So of course, with cloud platforms with hyperscalers, it's much easier for a small hosting company to start their own business as a reseller. So I'm not sure if this number will decline in the short run. But what we've definitely seen in the past year, some kind of consolidation. I mean, even Ionos, as I said, we, we have some 10 brands. And our strategy was always in markets that we enter to become number one or number two. And if we couldn't do this organically, for instance, we often bought the companies like in, in Poland, HomePL or in the UK. Fast hosts are now part of the Ionis group. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, it turns out I'm an Ionis user. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was part of our strategy. And of course, Fast House or HomePL or in Spain, Arsis, uh, they, they were huge companies already, but there are so many, many much smaller companies. And on the other hand, from the buying side, of course, you always need to check, can you actually manage to integrate such a company into your own business? Because we've seen this also with, with other companies where you suddenly had 20, 30, 40 companies in a hosting family, but some of these companies really have integration difficulties because the infrastructure is just so diverse and so different between the different companies that you just cannot harmonize it. What I just mentioned about this one one platform or internet factory approach that we pursue, but even for us, I mean, we've been planning this for four or five years now. So it is a, definitely something in, in the long run that you have to aim for. And for that, I think you need a certain size. If you don't have this, there's a, a good chance that sooner or later you might get bought by a bigger one. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, we are coming up on time, so I think that's a good opportunity to take us out. This has been, I've had a lot of nostalgia flashbacks, and I think it's only appropriate whenever you're discussing the history of the World Wide Web and the 90s and 2000s, I always like to hear what people's like favorite weird website was. Because I feel that was like the, like, you know, the peak period of like the weird web 
maybe it's been normalized a bit. Do you have a particular like website from your early days of internet usage that you remember fondly? I cannot think of a special website. I have a very funny memory of my second job, actually. So my first job was doing PR for a company. And my second job was for this, for UNIT, for this internet company. And when I applied there, I applied with the homepage I had created for a digital radio association that I worked for. Amazing. So I put this website on a CD-ROM and went to the job interview. And the head of marketing who interviewed me uh, put the CD-ROM with this website I've created in and just said, error message, error, error, error. Oh, no. <laughs> and it turned out that I had, I think I had programmed it on Netscape and Eddie was still using Internet Explorer. Ah, oh, the good old days. Perfect. Yeah. Again, this was in 1997. So at a point where you didn't worry too much about, at least I didn't, <laughs> obviously, not, not worry too much about browser compatibility. And also when the browser manufacturers were doing all kinds of off-standard things to get their features in. Definitely in this job interview, this was my weird website, but I still got the job afterwards. Perfect. I just love just the little beat of like giving someone a website on a CD-ROM. That is perfect. That is lovely. I think I still have them off the CD-ROM somewhere, but I don't have a CD-ROM player anymore. No, me either. Yep. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Andreas. It's been wonderful. And thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Joe. Beyond the Screen, an Ionis podcast. To find out more about Ionis and how we're the go-to source for cutting-edge solutions in web development, visit ionis.com and then make sure to search for Ionis in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Don't forget to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Ionis, thanks for listening.